the Policy Wonk Podcast. It's been a minute, but it has been a minute. I'm Joe. And I'm Kale. So Joe, what are we talking about today? Today, to start off after our little tiny itty bitty hiatus, there's some news out of Cleveland about an old infrastructure um, I guess project really about the Veterans Memorial Bridge downtown. If any listener remembers, maybe they're older, maybe they heard about it if they're younger. Um, the Veterans Memorial Bridge used to host a streetcar line back in the back in the 50s. I think the last streetcars ran in the city in like 1956. So it's been a long, long time since anything's been on, under that bridge besides obviously like car traffic. It's before our but time. Way before our time, you know, because we're young. Um. But County Executive Chris Ronyane, um has proposed a new project to revitalize the section of the bridge because it's just unused. And it's been unused for over half a century now. It's called the Low Line Sky Park. Um, and it would turn the vacant lower deck of the bridge into a uh, park that would be in a really unique location, I think. And most people agree because it would be above the city and it would offer an incredible view of like the river and everything else uh, downtown. Uh, and all this information is coming from Cleveland scene. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. And the whole, one of the main arguments for this is that it, it would be a very unique project for Cleveland, right? Every city has parks. That's nothing new. but we have this space, I think it's over like 3,000 square feet of empty vacant space that could be turned into something that could be really beneficial for the community, that could be used as a meeting space for young people, for whoever. And it'd be another unique attraction in Cleveland. Um, it's, it sounds sweet. I think it'd be cool as hell. Um, and a lot of the stuff that would be required is already done. Obviously, you already have the space. You'd have to, you'd obviously have to do some um, retrofitting to make the uh, park a park. But there is some precedent for this too. In New York City, they have the High Line, which was a repurposed one and a half mile rail spur in the Chelsea neighborhood. Now, the only concern that I have seen from developers in the city and also from media, is that the New York High Line took an, almost a decade. And it also cost um, over $150 million just for the first phase. And the third phase, the final phase, was finished in 2014. Um, but now, even though it took a very long time, it still sees 8 million visitors a year. Now, obviously, Cleveland's not going to get that many visitors just for one park, but I think the argument still holds that this would bring a lot more people downtown, and it would also expand Cleveland's host of unique attractions that we have in the city. Yeah, I mean, from a from a student perspective, that just sounds like a really cool place to just be, you know? And, like, I know we've said it before, and I know our friends have said it before. There's not a lot of places here to just kind of hang out around, right? Besides the bars, obviously, public square, I guess. Um, 
my favorite you place know, you know because everyone's going to public square just every day i think the um this park would be a really cool feature especially for college students too just to try to give them something right? to do downtown that isn't just like drinking and it's also in general like a awesome way to use something that's already there yeah instead it's of not... instead of like building something new or just letting it sit there empty like it has been it's it it would just be really cool to reuse it yeah it's a i think it'd be a really cool way to reuse the space instead of having to take up new property and build something new when you can just use this vacant lot well you know vacant bridge essentially part of a vacant bridge that hasn't done anything for the last half century so but moving on from local business kale what's going on with our very needed and very uh efficient use of 20 million dollars election on august 8th so it's interesting that you brought that up um because the senate budget for the state of ohio which we've already said don't read through the budgets it's terribly boring but the senate budget for the state of ohio only gives 15 million dollars when we said we needed 20 million dollars for this election um so that's one thing but two let's just dive into kind of like what the what the language of this issue one talks about so all of the stuff that we're talking about comes from the dayton daily shout out front of the pod but the issue one requires that any proposed amendment to the Ohio Constitution gets at least 60% of the votes, which we've talked about who knows how many times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so issue one, enemy of the pod. But it, it's that alone is enough to at least get people thinking, why... Why are they trying to come after a simple majority when that's been the precedent for forever? 120-something years of direct democracy in Ohio. Yeah. But furthermore, it changes the way like grassroots organizations can put things on the ballot. So it requires that petitions put in front of the voters, again, from Dayton Daily, be signed by at least 5% of the eligible voters in each of Ohio's 88 counties. So right now, you only have to go to 44, which is half. And the Ohio GOP and proponents of issue one are all saying, well, we should give all counties a say and blah, blah, blah. But you and I have talked about this before. When you sign a petition, you're not endorsing the issue. You're just saying you're willing to put it up to the democratic process. So when a handful, when a group of people want something on the ballot if it's not a good idea it'll be voted down exactly by the majority you know 50 plus one but the other it, thing that's so absurd about i mean the whole thing's absurd the 60 percent threshold is bullshit the the state constitution is not like the federal constitution the things are not comparable anyone making that comparison is being disingenuous or they're a liar or they're Frank LaRose. Those two, those three things are actually have a lot in common, believe it or not. Or they're but Frank LaRose. The thing that's most crazy is requiring signatures from all 88 counties. Yeah. There's huge 
population discrepancies between counties in this state. Not just like comparing Franklin County to like Lake or Ashtabula or Portage. You're talking about the counties that have maybe 12,000 people in them that could totally torpedo a, um, a ballot initiative just because they couldn't get 5% of registered voters in that county to sign. That's right. absurd. That's absurd. And I get why the existing, you have to get signatures from half of the 88 counties. That makes sense. From all 88 counties, that's not a reasonable thing to ask. And it's a way to keep popular policy initiatives that are usually more, you know, frankly, left-leaning in nature off the ballot, right? Yeah. I think that's what that's the one of the most concerning things that's also in this issue that I don't think a lot of people understand. I recently talked to Brian Stewart, who proposed HJR one and supported the passage of SJR two, and he was. I, I asked him, I was like, "You guys say that this type of thing prevents well-funded groups from influencing Ohio's constitution, but at the end of the day, if you're." Requiring people to mobilize with time, people, resources, money even, to all 88 counties, you're really only benefiting the well-funded groups. Grassroots organizations don't have enough people to send to all 88 counties. And on top of that, this is just another thing of entrenching minority rule. Mm -hmm. It's, It's absolutely crazy. And this bill does one more thing, and it takes away kind of a, a grace period that we have right now. So there's the deadline to file all the petitions and get all the signatures counted and stuff like that. And then after that, you get 10 days to kind of make up for signatures that were invalid and things like that. It gets rid of that. And that's something that I didn't realize was a huge deal until this issue came about and people were complaining about it. There are a lot of organizations that try to get these signatures. And a lot of signatures are invalid because, one, people's handwriting stuff. Two, people don't fill out petitions the right way. So it actually, they have the amount of signatures that they need, but in reality, they don't because these signatures don't count. So they got to yeah. go back out and re-get them. That's, it's it's kind of like, you know, the curing process. This process already exists kind of similar, similarly with, if you have to vote provisional ballot in an election for whatever reason, shit happens, right? You forget an ID, you didn't update your address, something's wrong, whatever. You have a grace period to not fix your ballot, but you have a grace period so you can, uh, you know, provide that information so that your vote is counted in an election. And of course, Republicans in the state also cut down on the cure period for provisional ballots earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but and now they're doing the same thing for ballot initiatives, right? I don't. Like, I can't underestimate how many signatures that, that you have to gather to get something on the ballot. It's a lot. I don't even know the number offhand. It's a lot of fucking signatures. And to restrict the right to try to fix those signatures, again, it's it's a way to keep popular policy from getting enacted because voters like it. In Ohio, Ohio Capital Journal... Um during the the state house part of things for this whole issue uh published an article talking about brian stewart and how he in a letter to his colleagues said that it is about independent redistricting and it is about abortion and 
those are popular things where the tendency is to the left, even though independent redistricting committees shouldn't be a left-wing thing. It should be a bipartisan thing. Yeah. But Joe, this issue is going to be on the ballot in August, on August 8th, and Policy Wonk urges all of you to vote now. But there's concern over the language on the ballot, is there not? There is. So the ballot language that was approved by, I can't remember the name of the committee, but it's it's within the Attorney General's office. The Attorney General is Dave Yost, who is a partisan hack, in my opinion. Um, and there's concern over it because the language within what you're going to see on the ballot in August could probably sway voters that are not, I don't want to say well-informed, but they haven't paid attention to the election. And the way that the language, that the ballot language is written makes it seem like, oh, this is good and I need to vote for it. It uses words like elevate standards, right? That's not a neutral way to describe something. Using words like that can either, like, it's pretty obvious it would sway like a regular person that is not super involved in politics to vote for something, right? Without letting them know that, oh, yeah, this also makes it really tough to pass things in general. Like ballot, it also makes it harder to pass ballot initiatives. It also raises the requirement to get the ballot initiative on the ballot. And using these kinds of this kind of language is distracting from that. It's just saying, this is good, vote for it, essentially. And additionally, um, this is again from Dayton Daily. Don Mateague of One Person, One Vote, which is a a organization that kind of formed around this thing. Um, they're currently suing Frank LaRose in the state of Ohio, but we're not going to talk about that. He argued that the adopted description of issue one does not highlight the actual changes it would bring. And that's like, that's true. It doesn't really yeah. talk about what is actually being changed, nor does it say anything. I mean, this wouldn't be neutral, but it doesn't say anything about how this is changing 120 something years of tradition in the state of ohio and it's it's mind-boggling especially because recently and i don't have a source on this right now but recently the people who approved the ballot language have said that they know that it wasn't really written very well and it's when you think how did we get here how do we get to this point it all comes back to partisan gerrymandering right joe yeah It, it, it it always does it always does because I think in a normal world, not a normal world, in a normal state house where um, seats were, where districts were drawn in a way that actually reflect how people identify in this state, you probably wouldn't see something like this on the ballot. You probably wouldn't, honestly. And I don't want to kind of downplay the fact that everyone needs to go out and vote no on August 8th, but. Other very conservative states, like Missouri, uh, had ballot initiatives like this to raise the threshold to 60%, and they failed. They failed overwhelmingly in the past few years. Um, so that should give us hope that hopefully this fails here too, but don't get complacent. Uh, make sure your voter registration is up to date, and make yes. sure you bring an ID on yes. August 8th too. A, an, an actual ID that is now... Like the the amount of identification that you're allowed to bring is now restricted by the state. 
So just make sure that you know what you're allowed to bring and what counts as a valid ID to vote. Yes. It's al- it's almost like, it's interesting that you brought up other states, because it's almost like people appreciate having more democracy and more freedoms. But Yeah. And another one example, Florida. So they have a 60% threshold, right? I don't think the bill passed out of committee, but in the Florida legislature, uh, politicians tried to raise the threshold from 66 from 60% to 66.75% to pass a ballot initiative. Um, that's really absurdly evil because it's funnily enough, uh, just above the uh, percentage of the vote that uh, the $15 minimum wage in the state of Florida was passed by. So, Again, these people will just keep trying to raise the requirements to keep popular policy off the books. It's really so, clear. So, Joe, let's let's be positive here for a second. What is the path to victory for the vote no campaign? I have an answer in my head, but I want to see what you have to say before I give it. Uh, you're voting no in August because... This has worked for the last 120 years. There is no reason to change it. Um, this election is going to cost you $20 million. It's a waste of time. Go in, vote no, leave. That's the only thing that's on your ballot in August. There is, There are very little local elections. This, There is one thing that you will be voting for, and it will be this issue, and you need to vote no because they're wasting your time and they're wasting your money. And you need to send them a message that this can't fly anymore. So the path to victory is making sure that everybody is educated on what is actually happening. Yeah. And so my answer to that question is, I've been saying this from the get-go, the side that mobilizes the most amount of people is the side that's going to win. Mm-hmm. Because in the last August, like one of the one of the August special elections that Frank LaRose and Brian Stewart used to ban August special elections had a 8% voter turnout, which mm-hmm. is appalling. But because of that, the side that mobilizes the most amount of people is the side that's going to win. So making sure that people are educated on the issue and making sure that they come out and vote. Because right now, quite frankly, people on the left and normal people, conservatives, everybody is pissed about this because this it doesn't make sense. It's an obvious power grab. So there's a lot of people that are pissed about it. So they're going to go out and vote and they're going to vote no. But like you said a minute ago, do not be complacent. Mm-hmm. Don't sit back and say, oh, well, it's not going to pass anyways because it's bad legislation. Go vote. Because what happens is if you don't vote because you think that way, other people are going to think that way. And more and more people think that way. And then it's going to end up passing. Yeah. So and then make I will... sure you vote. And then I will find you and I will yell at you a lot because if this passes and I find out that someone didn't vote or voted yes, we're going to have a chat. We're going to have a little chit chat in a friendly way. But I just want to talk. I just want to talk. Uh, but it's funny that we were talking about partisan gerrymandering because there's some national news today from the Supreme Court um, in a 5 4 decision. Uh, surprisingly, the Supreme Court upheld a provision of the Voting Rights Act that requires states to draw majority-minority districts. Um, 
this really applies. This was this provision was included in the law back in 1965 when it was passed uh, to ensure that Black Americans had proper representation in Congress after the end of Jim Crow, so that uh, white politicians in the South couldn't gerrymander Black people out of Congress. Um, and one of the underpinnings of this case, uh, what the plaintiff argued, I cannot remember what the actual case name is. Um, is that the state of Alabama had the ability to draw two majority black districts, but they did not. And what the Supreme Court said is that, yeah, Alabama, Alabama's current congressional map is unconstitutional and they have to redraw their map one, but they have to redraw their map with an additional majority black district, which one is good for democracy, increasing the representation and allowing minority voters to have a chance to elect someone that represents their political views is a positive. Um, also, this is big news for Democrats because in general, uh, minority voters tend to vote more Democratic. Now, this doesn't just affect Alabama. Sure, Alabama's maps specifically are tossed out. They have to redraw. But this also affects Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida, but also probably Texas um, and Tennessee. Now, like I said, the VRA, that provision was meant to protect black Americans, but it also protects other minority groups like Hispanics and Asians. I believe it's the Dallas-Fort Worth area that it's, pro it's very likely that they're going to be required to draw an additional majority Hispanic district. Um, now, like I said, minority voters tend to vote Democratic in general, but they're not a monolith. But it's very likely that an, an additional majority Hispanic district in Texas would probably give Democrats another seat in Congress. So it's big news that's still developing right now because you're still getting reactions from uh, the NAACP and whatnot, but also there's no other word to say really shitty politicians that want to gerrymander minority voters out of Congress. Um, I thought it was really funny. I saw that the attorney general of Alabama said this fight isn't over. It is like, you can't really appeal it to anyone else, bro. You want to go to the ICJ, the galactic Senate, but it's, it's good news. It, it's really nice to finally see that the Supreme court isn't completely evil and horrible. And it's interesting. So people can say what they want about Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, but most of the time when there is kind of a, not necessarily bipartisan, but a like coalition of conservatives and liberals on the court, it's normally Roberts and Kavanaugh. It's not Alito, it's not Thomas, but it, it's it's interesting to see what they not Thomas. It's certainly not Thomas. <laughs> but it's like really interesting to see where Roberts and Kavanaugh draw the line on a certain issue. Cause like this, I feel like this is a, this is a case that I, if I knew was going to the court, I wouldn't trust the court, Yeah, but I would also have yeah. to eat my words because obviously this decision. Well, I didn't trust them either. I thought they were going to gut the last remaining provision of the VRA. Mm -hmm. They didn't um, still doesn't make up for every single horrible decision they've made in the last like 10 years, but it also doesn't make up for the fact that the Voting Rights Act is just, it's gone. It doesn't it's exist. It's just kind of a shell. 
of what it was, it's, sadly. It's a hollowed out provision, but it's it's moving in the right direction as far as gerrymandering goes. Mm, hopefully, hopefully it, it impacts Ohio. Hopefully, uh, it won't because it's the VRA side of things. But hopefully, it shows that there's there's a place for gerrymandering like the conversation on the national level. Yeah. It's an important step forward. I mean, as we all know, gerrymandering has gotten really bad in the last 10 years specifically. Um, it's always been an issue. It's always been there. But I think more and more people are trying to are starting to pay attention going, yeah, this is kind of just kind of fucked up. Like probably shouldn't be allowed to do that which hopefully gets people to start telling their representatives that, Hey, like I get it. You've been elected, but it's time. It's time to let us have districts that actually reflect what our communities believe in. I would, it would be ideal to have like competitive districts across the board, but that's impossible. So do you prefer competitive maps or fair maps? Fair. I mean, there's a lot of ways to draw districts, you know, but it just because a map is competitive doesn't mean it's fair, right? Right. You shouldn't, like, for example, California shouldn't have a maximized competitive map. That would be absurd. California is a democratic state. It should have democratic districts. You shouldn't be drawing neighborhoods in LA in to districts that are in Northern California, right? That would be absurd. Same thing goes for places like, um, you know, Tennessee, South Carolina. Red states shouldn't have competitive maps if they're that if they're that red. You should have maps that reflect the partisan breakdown of the state, but also respect communities of interest. Interests, right? Like uh, downtown Cleveland should not be in the same district as I don't know, like rural Portage County. That doesn't make sense. Right, right. Um, and Ohio's map is fairer now. Uh, I use that term very lightly, but it is fairer than what it was between, you know, 2010 and 2020. Um, so, yeah, I think respecting communities of interest and also trying to match the partisan breakdown of the state is the best way to go. You shouldn't be drawing just compact competitive maps. That's not really a good way to draw things. So, Joe, during our hiatus, something quite uh, important happened. Uh, still on the national level, um, the debt ceiling passed. So let's talk about it for a minute. So mm -hmm. it, it passed 63 to 36 in the Senate, which is kind of the margin people were expecting. Um, I had no doubt in my mind that after a deal was reached, it wouldn't, like, it would fail, especially because we were kind of on the eve of defaulting. Mm -hmm. So 63 to 36 is, is roughly where a lot of people um, thought that it would be at, I guess. But a lot of people who voted for it had a lot of grievances, and a lot of people who voted against it had a lot of grievances. So what are your thoughts, Joe? I'm a very pragmatic person with my beliefs, right? I'm a social democrat. I make no qualms about it. I believe very strongly about things but I'm a very realistic person, right? And there was a lot of concessions made. There was a lot of concessions made by Democrats. There's a lot of concessions made by the GOP. 
one of the biggest concessions that Dems made was agreeing to work requirements for SNAP and I think it's TNAF, uh, federal assistance for food, whatnot. Now, I personally, SNAP or work requirements for federal programs don't really do anything. And it just restricts people's access to benefits that they need to survive. Mm -hmm. But these are the things that you have to give, right? You're not going to get everything you want. Congress is very closely divided. And it's kind of absurd to think that Democrats were going to walk away with a debt ceiling deal uh, without giving on some stuff. Um, another thing they gave up was that student loan repayments have to restart at the end of the summer. They are restarting at the end of the summer. There's no guessing about it anymore, right? Um, now, student loan forgiveness is still in place for now, pending a Supreme Court decision. But, you know, I think I don't, and I think we said it on the last episode, I mean, the debt ceiling should not be a bargaining tool. It's not yeah. for either side, right? Democrats right. played right. with it. Democrats held it over president's heads in the past. Republicans did it under Obama. They did it again under Biden. But it's it's bad for both parties to do this because it threatens the jeopardy of the economy and it hurts everyone if we defaulted on our loans, right? Yeah. Uh, what about what about you, Kill? What do you what do you think? What are you thinking? I so. I agree with you in the sense that um, there's going to be concessions made by both sides because it is a true bipartisan bill. And I I understand having grievances with things. For example, the SNAP benefits we talked about. I don't think that work requirements for something like SNAP is what we should be doing, I guess. Yeah. But I feel like from a from a like we the people perspective, there are a lot of people on like social media and things like that who are just scrapping the entire thing. They're like the whole thing sucks. It's stupid because of snap benefits, because of non-defense spending, and because of things like that. And I'm like, one, we avoided default. Yeah. And that's what's important. Two when it comes to bipartisan legislation, it's not always going to be everybody agrees on everything. So take the parts that you agree with, because I think that Joe Biden got more than he gave. Just, I mean, that's yeah. me. But take the thing, take the victories, and then work on how can we correct the the losses moving on, like moving forward. Yeah, And it's going to be a conversation that we have to have again in 2024, 2025. So, I mean, it's worthy of criticism on both sides. But I think the criticism shouldn't be the whole bill stupid because there are some good things in the bill. For example, um, anything that had to do with the infrastructure bill was not touched and that was something that Kevin McCarthy wanted to gut a little bit and I think that's a huge victory the other thing that Democrats agreed to um which they still agreed to a concession but they they agreed to I think it was around five to eight billion dollars in a cut to the proposed spending for the IRS Republicans talked about gutting the agency even more but 
you know, that that was something I think Democrats really came out ahead on. But like we said, it was something that had to be done. This isn't something that should ever be used as a negotiating tactic ever from either party. And I'm just glad that the country isn't going to default on its loans because I like having a job, right? I, I like, like having living work, comfortably, right? I like the you know, unemployment rate not being 15%. Personally, maybe you like it a little bit higher. Me, I like it when it's at like 3.7, you know? I like it being as low as Joe Biden has made it. Yeah. This is a true statement. Which is the lowest it's been in like half a century, so. But it is interesting because we're going to have to have the same debate in two years after the next presidential election. Um, one thing that I think everyone should know is that the debt ceiling, when we raise the debt ceiling, it's not about future spending. It's about the spending that we've already made, right? It's about yep. the $900 billion of military spending we already authorized. It's about everything that we spent in the last two years. So you're really, and I get it, you can make, uh, you can attach strings to future spending, sure. But you should probably authorize raising the debt ceiling because of spending that everyone in Congress already agreed to, um, which also brings up the argument that I won't get too in the weeds to, that the debt ceiling is probably unconstitutional anyways, but whatever. So Joe, I don't know if you did, because for some reason I wasn't texting you during the process, but I was watching on C-SPAN because, you know, I'm like the coolest person ever because I watched C-SPAN. Is a policy wonk? Yeah, I am. I am, in so fact, is, a policy wonk. So is Senator Antonio. Shout out. Shout out. I am definitely a policy wonk. But I was watching the vote on the Senate floor. Um, took three hours longer than I thought it was going to because they voted for 11 amendments. Everybody there knew that none of the amendments were going to pass. Um, all the votes were along party lines except like one, and it was Joe Manchin. But I, I want to applaud the leadership of Chuck Schumer, who we have met, and it was a cool experience. But friend, friend of the pod, best friend of the pod. I want to applaud his leadership because the entire time he was making comments, keeping the Senate on schedule, like he was timing everything and one time a vote took 11 minutes instead of 10 minutes and he said that was 11 minutes we're slipping we got to get back into it and then the next vote took nine minutes and 30 seconds and he was like let's let's keep this up and it's just, it was good it's and, really interesting uh, to see how they work together it's funny there there was one time where i i had a tweet typed out on my phone and it was senator kennedy shut up um because most of the amendments were proposed by him but I, I ended up not sending that out. One, because nobody will know what I'm talking about. But two, I just didn't send it. But please, Senator Kennedy, shut up. Even though he said, um, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. Call a crackhead. Call a crackhead. Call Man, a crackhead. what a legendary moment. <laughs> call a crackhead. So Joe, we're gonna move into some national news. We're going to talk about how NATO is sending 700 additional troops to Kosovo in Europe, um, in the Balkans, in response to violent protests against ethnic Albanians taking office in Kosovo. Mm. Um, this is a Serbian response, and it's it's kind of 
getting a little out of control. So NATO is sending 700 additional peacekeepers to the to the region. Um, but NATO is responding really fast. And it's something that I'm not necessarily used to because I didn't grow up in the 90s when NATO last had to like really respond to something. So Joe, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about NATO and and kind of the unity of the West. That's you know, I think it's been brought more to the attention of uh, people because when the war in Ukraine started two years or a year and a half ago now, I think, um, you know, you know, for those who aren't aware, NATO is the Western alliance between. Um, democratic countries, you know, uh, to protect Western interests. Um, and what, I think the last time we were involved in like the Balkans was in the 90s under Clinton, I believe, right? Yep. Um, but it, I think this brings up a really important point of how it's important for NATO allies, n- not only countries that are in the alliance, but also countries like Finland and Sweden and Sweden, um, and other Asian countries that, you know, we have to stick together in the face of things like Russian aggression in Ukraine, um, but also violence in the Balkans and wherever it might occur, because as a unified front, the West is very strong, both militarily, yeah, but also ideologically, regardless of if these countries are you know, center-right, ruled by a left-wing party or whatever, I think it goes to show that we still have ideals that hold us together regardless of national ideology, right? It's it's important. I understand the importance of NATO. It is a remnant of the Cold War. It was formed... Um, it stand, NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was formed in response to the Soviet Union and uh, like Soviet bloc countries working together on things. So it it, it doesn't have that same purpose today. Obviously, mm-hmm. with the, with the war in Ukraine, it's it has kind of that that vibe to it, I guess, where it's a unit united front against, like you said, Russian aggression. Um, but I I feel like what you said was perfect about ideological ideological strength ideological unity um i do think that nato and the european union have human rights in common um obviously no one's perfect but yeah when when there is a human rights issue i do feel like nato has a duty to step in um mm-hmm. maybe not with force i think that I think that NATO has the ability to become a diplomatic weapon. Yeah. And obviously with the war in Ukraine, we've seen that. Um, and under President Biden, NATO's expanding to include Finland and we'll see who else, but it is expanding. The alliance is becoming stronger. Economic unity between the EU and the rest of like North America is mm-hmm. becoming stronger and honestly there's there's unity among non-western countries who is that is that lyndon johnson it is he jumped up on my lap 
little uh, cameo. Little cameo. Celebrity cameo. Yes. Former president of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson. But it, it it is interesting seeing the the unity against certain things in like in Ukraine with non-NATO members and like Western countries, like traditionally Western countries. So like our allies in Asia, like you said, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, our ties to them is are is becoming stronger because of because of the unity of NATO and the unity of like the economic powers of the West. And it's it's very interesting. It's very cool. Um but it, it is nice to see um a quick NATO response in in Kosovo and Serbia. Yeah. I mean, as under um I, again Lyndon. Um because as we know under Trump, I think the US's credibility internationally was thrown into question. Um it sure was. And and now seeing that under and again, I don't wanna I don't wanna give President Biden too much credit, but I think over the last three years, we've been able to rebuild that credibility with not only our international allies, uh, but also our NATO allies, which are incredibly important because having a military alliance that can stand up to, to countries like Russia and their aggression towards Ukraine, but in the future, because it's it's very likely that China is going to try to encroach upon Taiwan more, but also you know, like countries like Iran, uh, other countries that don't really align with democratic values that we tend to um, value more than they do. And that's that's not a criticism of how how they operate their countries. They can do with how they want, but you don't have the right to violate the integrity of another sovereign nation. That is not a right. Yep. Certainly. So I do think you, you did talk about China for a second. I do think that, um, I mean, you've said on the show before, China is a competitor, not yeah. an enemy. Until they do something that makes them the enemy. Um, and I'm sure, I hope that uh, Beijing sees us the same way. We're not the enemy until we do something to make us the enemy. Mm-hmm. But that's where that's where I think that a a diplomatic ideological NATO would play a major role in is seeing China as a competitor, building a relationship with China, making sure that China's committed to peace, making sure that we're committed to peace, and things like that. And I do think that I, with the war in Ukraine, I do think that NATO is moving in that direction. So yeah. it, it is foreign policy is very uh, interesting to me. So that's why I'm traveling to the United Kingdom to study foreign policy. It's interesting that you bring that up, Kale, because you're heading to the UK soon. I am heading to the United Kingdom very, very, very soon. Um, so because of that, obviously, all the opposite side of the planet, different time zone. Um, if we can organize a recording for Policy Wonk, we will. If not, we apologize. Uh, we know all of our loyal fans are going to be very, very heartbroken. But... Um, I mean, there's I I have some plans for for some shawl talk stuff when I'm over in uh the uh, across the pond. Across the pond, we eat your beans and toast. Hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. Can you, get, can you get Keir Starmer on your podcast? I was thinking Rishi Sunak. I will still be here. Um, 
the only reason why I haven't launched my sideshow is because I have not, honestly, I have not had the time. I've been working a lot uh, recently, both at my job that actually pays me, but also volunteer work with the Lake County Democrats um, and other stuff in Northeast Ohio. But I will keep people updated on that. I'm hoping to post more, to start posting TikToks on the Policy Walk account so that we can just talk about stuff that's going on. Because I like that form when I can, you know, answer questions that people might ask our Q&A. I think we have a Q&A option on our account on TikTok. Um, but yeah, so we'll keep you guys updated if we can. Like Kale said, we'll record. If we can't, well, blame England. Yeah, blame England. We should for a number of things. But, but I, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to bring that insight back to Policy Wonk and back to Cleveland and Ohio and the United States. So I'm excited. Yeah. But with that, that's all we got for today. It is. So we'll see you guys next time. Uh, again, sorry for the little hiatus, but Wonk Nation. Wonk Nation. Out. We'll see you guys.